50 sermons, praise God, 50 lessons in Hebrews, and we are now at the end. The last four verses. Now the writer of Hebrews has just pronounced this amazing benediction, this soaring benediction in verses 20 and 21. He says, now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. So he's finished this huge benediction, and then the Holy Spirit prompts him to say a few more things. It's like when you're writing a letter. You say what you want to say, and you get to the end, and then you put a P.S. Now, you don't put insignificant things in a P.S. You save a P.S. for important stuff. P.S. I love you. P.S. See you on the 15th. P.S. Give the kids a hug and a kiss for me. P.S. This is the P.S. of Hebrews. I've been reading in 1 Kings recently, and I've been, I've been reading about Solomon and how, how God said to him, ask me for anything. I'll give it to you. And what did Solomon ask for? He asked for a wise and discerning heart. And so God said, I'm going to give you a wise and discerning heart, and I'm also going to give you everything you didn't ask for, too. But Solomon was known as the wisest man on earth. In his day, there was no one wiser. And I'll tell you what, the writer of the book of Hebrews is no slouch in the wisdom department. You see, these final words in the book of Hebrews is uh, a P.S. They're words of wisdom. They're words of wisdom uh, on a doctrinal, practical, encouraging letter. This letter that was focused on the greatness of Jesus Christ. This letter that was focused on the new covenant that superseded the old. Verse 22, the writer begins, I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation, because I've written to you briefly. Briefly? Oh, really? There are about 10,000 words in this letter. It's a long letter. It's a word of encouragement. Uh, That's code for sermon written down. You can see it in the book of Acts. Sermon written down. He says, bear with this word of encouragement, this word of exhortation that I've written to you briefly. Brief? 10,000 words? Now you could read this in an hour. In one sitting, you could read the whole book. We took 50 weeks. We took 50 sermons to do what you could do in an hour. I told you now because... No, think about it. Hebrews is a word of exhortation. It is the perfect example of verse-by-verse teaching, of expositional teaching in the Bible. It is an exposition of Old Testament passages. And so there's ample reason for us to go through it in 50 weeks or 100 weeks. But it's a word of exhortation. It's a written sermon. And he says, I've written to you briefly. Brief. 10,000 words. It's, it's shorter than Romans. It's shorter than 1 Corinthians. Longer than some other New Testament letters. But why could he say, I've written to you briefly? Because if he had said everything he could have said about the greatness and the supremacy and the preeminence of Jesus, it would have been much longer. 
If he had said everything he could say about the greatness of the new covenant over the old covenant, it would have been much longer. I've written to you briefly. Why would he say, bear with this word? Because he's telling us, he's saying, listen to the word of God. Listen to the word of God. Attend to it. Take it to heart. Pay attention to it. Pay attention to what the Spirit is saying to the church. The writer is saying, pay attention to what the Spirit is saying through me to you. Listen. Listen to the word. He says, bear with it. Why why would he say that? Listen to the word of God. But also, if you think back to Colossians chapter 3, verse 13, it says, bear with one another. Put up with one another. Endure one another. He wanted them to bear with this letter, this sermon, this word of, of exhortation, because at times it would assault their faulty theological thinking. At times it would come up upon some ideas and some thoughts and some theological views about God that were wrong, that they were holding. It would challenge them in their life. This was a word of exhortation. There's a lot of encouragement here. It's very heartfelt. It's very doctrinal. But it's very practical. But it's also very pointed. He hits straight to the heart. He drills down where you and I live. There were a lot of warning passages in the book of Hebrews. Warnings like, don't drift away from what you've heard. Chapter 2. Don't drift away from the gospel. Don't drift away from following Jesus. Don't drift away. Don't drift because there's danger in drifting. What other kind of warnings did he give? He said in chapter 3, don't reject God's voice. He says, today if you hear God's voice, respond. Don't, Don't neglect and don't reject God who is speaking. In chapter 5 and going into chapter 6, he says, don't be dull of hearing. There were some who had become dull of hearing. They had to go back to the basics. They had to go back to the elementary things. They couldn't handle the deeper, deeper truths. What else did he warn them about? He warned them in chapter 10 about not despising the knowledge of the truth and not neglecting God's grace, not trampling upon God's grace. Not devaluing it. And there's another warning at the end of chapter 12 of not uh, departing from him who speaks, him who speaks from heaven. Not departing from Jesus, not departing from God's word, not departing from the gospel message. Well, how do we apply this to our lives and and to our families and to the church of Christ? How do we apply this? How do we we live this? Where, Where are the feet to this? Well, I'll tell you, it's this. God speaks to us through his word. God speaks through the word. It's it's literally, as 2 Timothy 3.16 says, it's God-breathed, straight from the mouth of God. Human authors wrote it down as God spoke through them. God speaks through his word, and so we've got to listen. We've got to expose ourselves to the word, and then we've got to let God's word be willing to let it change us. Be willing to let it do its work in us. I brought a bucket of rocks today. I bought a whole bucket of rocks here, and it stands for something. We all carry buckets of rocks everywhere we go. 
you carry it uh, to the supermarket. You carry it to the ball field. You carry it to school. You carry it to the marketplace. You carry it to your office. You carry it to your time in the Word, just you and God. You carry it to your Bible study and your small group. You carry it into this, into this gathering this morning. In fact, I was thinking we should have little uh, bucket of rocks holders, you know, near the seats so we could put our buckets of rocks. They're not bad, by the way. They're good. Well, sometimes they're bad, but, but these are good. See, what this stands for is all your beliefs. Everything you believe to be true about God and you and how life works. And so you've got this bucket of rocks you're carrying around, and when you come to the Word of God, let's say in the morning, and you open it up, and you see something in it that doesn't match with what's in your bucket of rocks, you've got to be willing to take the faulty one out and let it be replaced. Let God displace it with the truth. You see, for example, this, this might stand for, this is my belief that God is good. And he is good all the time. Always. Well, that rock is staying in here because it's true. But let's say you hold to a belief and you say, I don't think that God would ever do that. And you open up your Bible and you, and you see, God does do that. And you say, well, wait, God's a God of love. How can he do that? And you've got to make a choice right then. Are you going to hold to your faulty thinking or are you going to let the word of God transform your mind and transform your thoughts and transform your beliefs? There are a lot of people who say, well, I don't believe God would do that. Or I don't think God is like that. And they hold on so tightly that they come to the word of God and they superimpose those ideas into the text. We all do it. None of us has a 100% corner on the truth. We are all deceived in some way. That's the nature of deception. That's the nature of being human. That we, we think certain things and we just think, well, since I think it, it must be true. And since I feel so strongly about it, it must be valid. I've got my right. But the thing is, we come to the word of God and we are either going to push our ideas into the word, which is wrong, or let the word inform us and, and uh, flavor our life and season our life and transform our life, transform our mind. The word of God is powerful. The book of Hebrews started in Hebrews chapter 1 at verse 1, God after he has spoken long ago in the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son. You see, Jesus Christ is God's definitive speech. Jesus Christ is God's last word. Jesus Christ is whom God the Father has spoken through and whom we need to listen to. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 it says, the word of God is living, it is active, it is sharper than any double-edged sword, and it pierces as far as the division of joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. So we have a choice to make when we come to the word of God. Are we going to listen, or are we going to make God's word serve us? So we've got this bucket of rocks, and we carry it around. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, listen. 
Bear with this word of exhortation. I've written to you briefly. I could have said much more about the supremacy and the preeminence and the greatness of Jesus. I could have said much more about the new covenant and how it has superseded the old. You see, the book of Hebrews was written most likely between 67 and 69 A.D., before the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. in Jerusalem. Meaning that the temple sacrifices were still going on. Meaning that people were still caught up in all the trappings that Jesus had come and superseded some 70 years prior. Listen to the word of God. There are things we hold to that are not true, that are not accurate about God and about ourselves. And we've got to let the word of God flavor our thinking. Assault our faulty thinking at times. And influence our life and influence our family and our workplace and the church and the world. There's that saying, uh, what goes up must come down. What is also true is what goes in must come out. Jesus said out of the, out of the, out of the mouth, uh, uh, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What's filling our heart? Is it the word of God? Or a bunch of thoughts that we're holding so tightly to that we think just have to be true. Let's listen to the word of God. Wise words. In verse 23, the writer says, I want you to notice something. Our brother Timothy has been released. Now, if you're wondering, I didn't know he was in jail. Nowhere in the New Testament does it tell us that Timothy was in jail. Right here, it's alluded to, though. It says, I want you to notice that our brother Timothy is, has been released. And if, if he comes soon, I'm, he and I are going to see you. He's going to go with me to see you. I can't wait. Our brother Timothy, he's been released. Nowhere in the New Testament does it tell us he's been in jail. But maybe it was after he received Paul's second letter to him, 2 Timothy. You see, 2 Timothy most likely was written around 67 A.D., and at the time, Timothy was wavering. Timothy was wavering in his, in his faithfulness and in his courage. And God was speaking through Paul and saying, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and of a sound mind. Be bold. Be godly. Preach the word. Be ready. Endure. Don't fear. Well, Hebrews, being written shortly after 2 Timothy, would be indicating to us that Timothy took those words to heart. That he preached the word boldly and was thrown in jail, just like Paul was, for preaching Jesus. What a privilege. What a privilege to be, to be suffering for the sake of the name. Suffering for the sake of the gospel. He says in verse 24, Greet all your leaders, all of them, it points out a very important truth for us, that of the plurality of elders and leadership in a local church. Not one, not greet your leader who tells you what to do all the time and is in charge of your life. No, greet your leaders, all of them. It, it points to the plurality of elders and the leadership that, that would say, we want to serve God. We want to serve and be servants for the people and to shepherd the flock. He says, greet all your leaders and, and all the saints. Greet everybody. And those from Italy greet you too. 
Now you know that I'm Italian and that I am a little too proud of my Italian descent. There are really only two kinds of people in the world. Italians and everyone else who thinks, hope that wishes they were. And, and, and he says, the Italians say hello. Now why would he be saying that? It's, it's generally thought that, that the writer of Hebrews was writing to a, a group of people that included uh, those who were born again, those that were believers, those that were wavering a bit, and those that were unconvinced. But they were all Jews, and they were living in Rome. And that most likely, he had a group of people around him that were from Italy. And he's saying, those from Italy, those with me from Italy Greet you who are in Italy. I'm going to say Italians or Italy as much as I... I've been waiting 50 sermons to say these words. Those from Italy greet you. My people greet you. I can just taste the garlic right now. You got garlic, you got olive oil. I mean, it doesn't get better than that. All right? Those from Italy greet you. What, what's he saying to us? What's he saying? Oh, by the way, I could, I could see the Italians now. They're looking over his shoulder. Hey, are you going to say hello from me? Come on, hey, put something in there about us. Because they want their, their voice heard. I should know. I'm Italian. All right. The, the Italians say hello. What is he saying? I don't think he's saying so much as he's showing what it means to love the brethren. To love your brothers and sisters in Christ. He's showing it. He had just encouraged them a few verses earlier. Pray for your leaders. Earlier in chapter 13, let love of the brethren continue. Don't let it stop. It was in danger of stopping. Don't let love of the brethren stop. Let it continue. Don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Help the prisoners. Be kind to everybody. Do what God wants believers to do towards each other and towards the world. And I think he's showing us once again that we need to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's not easy. All brothers and sisters in Christ are not so lovable sometimes. He says in chapter 10, amen, preach it. All right. Uh, He says in chapter 10, he says, don't neglect the assembly. Don't, Don't neglect the assembly of believers. Love each other. Pray for each other. Do good and share. Don't neglect to do good and share. Because God is pleased with those sacrifices when you offer them in his name. Don't neglect to do those things. Love each other. The application for us, I believe, is the writer is giving us a glimpse, a real real perfect model for relationships and communication. Let me make a couple points. Friends, your friends should be able to say anything to you. They should be able to speak the truth into your life and not have you run away saying, we're not friends anymore. Because you've got the footing of a solid relationship. 
And you've got that basis of love that you, they should be able to say anything to you that they need to say, that God wants them to say, and not have you run away from them and say, forget you, I'll go find more new friends that will agree with me. Friends don't always agree. Family members don't always agree. Husbands and wives don't always agree, but you stay together. There's another illustration here. It's the idea that follow-up's important. Personal relationship is important. It's not just enough to teach and then run out the door. If you teach, you've got to be personally involved with the people. It's like 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. That we, we cared for you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her, her, her young child. And we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but our very lives. Why? Because you become very dear to us. There's this love and the two things that last forever. People and the word of God being shared, being mixed in relationship. And then there's that footing, this footing and this basis to be heard in the midst of relationship. That you can now speak something into someone's life that knows that you love them and know that you might assault their faulty thinking and that you might have to say something uncomfortable or something painful at times. But it's done in love. Love the brethren. Hey, say hi to your leaders. Greet all the saints. The Italians say hello. You know, in my family, uh, we, we drive to Tennessee every year. And um, there's a purpose. It's because of a relationship of love that exists between our folks and us. Angela's mom and dad. Mamma and papa to the kids. And we drive there every summer. And as we're driving Highway 40, I could literally drive that, that, that route with my eyes closed. Sometimes I do. And uh, um, partially, partially, you know, when you, hear, when you feel the bumps, you got to wake up, you know. And uh, we drive, and, and you go across country, and you start, and you, you just can't wait to get there because you can't wait to see them because we love them so much. And, and then we go through Arkansas where the roads are always messed up. And then all of a sudden, a few miles in the distance, we see a bridge, and it's a big bridge going over the Mississippi River into Memphis, Tennessee. Now, we're going all the way to Knoxville, but once we see that bridge, we know we're almost to Tennessee. So as we're going over the bridge, we're reaching in the car to see who can get into Tennessee first, which is usually me, okay, because I'm driving, and uh, I'm in Tennessee first. And we're like, we're almost there. Eight hours to go, or six, depending on how you drive. But whatever the case, we, we keep going, and we go through Nashville, and it, it, the excitement just gets, you can feel the excitement in the car. Because we can't wait to get to Mamma and Papa's house. And then we get off of Highway 40 and turn left and we're there. And it's amazing. People are hugging and kissing. and It's because we love one another. And we couldn't wait to see each other. Well, see, Paul had that often. He'd be writing a letter. And he'd say, I long to see you. I want to be with you. I'm in jail right now, so I can't. Or uh, something else is is keeping me, and I can't see you. But I I long to see you. And here he's saying, Timothy's out of jail. And if he comes soon, I'm going to see you with him. 
He's showing what it means to love the brethren. He's doing all he can where he's at at that point. See, in the true church of Jesus Christ, wherever it meets, wherever it is gathering, Christians love to be with other Christians to do what Christians are supposed to do. You know, gossip, slander. No, no. Um, No, the word, prayer, fellowship, outreach. The last thing the writer says, He's come to the very last words he's, he's putting down on, on, on the parchment. And he says, grace. Grace. Grace be with you all. That's what he says. His, his final words. Grace is so huge, it covers everything he has said so far in this letter in this sermon, in this word of exhortation. And what he's saying is, live by grace. Live by grace. Grace be with you all. Grace. Grace. God's grace. Charis in the Greek. Charis. That that beautiful, undeserved Kindness from God. That we could never merit, we could never purchase, we could never earn, we could never deserve in any way. And God, in Christ, He showers it upon us. Grace. The writer says, he's, He's climbing up the mountaintop. And He gets to the pinnacle. And He's looking over everything He's written. And He's thinking about the people He wrote to. And He says, Grace. He pronounces grace on them. Grace be with you all. Literally, in, in the Greek, here's how it reads. The grace with you all. The grace with you all. What grace? The grace of God in Christ Jesus. The gospel of the grace of God in Christ. The Christian life is all through Jesus and it is all by grace. It is all by grace. What does it mean to live by grace? What does it mean to live that way? It means to acknowledge the source of grace, where it comes from, only from God. It means to be confident in the giver of all grace, to be confident in what he wants to do and what he is able to do. The writer of Hebrews has spoken of grace. Look at Hebrews 4.16. Hebrews 4.16. He speaks of a high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, and he says, because he's gone through the heavens, we can hold fast our confession. Because he who promised is faithful. And that he has been tempted in every way as we, have, we are, but without sin. And then in verse 16, Hebrews 4, 16, he says, Therefore, because of that, let us draw near to God's throne of grace. Let us draw near boldly to God's throne of grace. Why? To receive mercy. To find grace to help in time of need. Grace. 
Grace that covers all our sin. Grace that enables everything we're able to do as a believer. Grace. In chapter 10, he speaks of those who had insulted the spirit of grace. Insulted the spirit of grace. He says in in chapter 12, make sure that no one falls short of the glory of God. Because it's dangerous to do that. It's dangerous to fall into the hands of the living God without being covered by grace. Without being covered in the grace that comes through the shed blood of Jesus. And then he says in chapter 13, verse 9, it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, grace. Spiritually, our hearts are strengthened by God's grace. The grace of God with you all. What grace? The grace of God in Christ. The grace by which we are saved. Look at Titus chapter 3. Just go to the left in your Bibles. Past Philemon, right there, Titus. It says in chapter 3, verse 4, When the kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Verse 6, Whom He poured out upon us, Richly through Christ our, Jesus Christ our Savior. And verse 7, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. In James chapter 4, verse 6, God says, I'm opposed to the proud, but I give grace to the humble. I give grace to the humble. By grace we are saved. Second Corinthians Chapter 12 and verse 9. Paul has his thorn in the flesh and he cries out to God, God, take it away. And God says, my grace is sufficient for you. Lord, take it away. My grace. My grace is sufficient. Oh Lord, take it away. My grace is sufficient for you. Entirely sufficient for our every need. The grace of God. As we are saved by grace, so we live by grace and we serve by grace. We're focusing right now as a church on unselfish service. And unselfish service is born out of grace. You know those sob cars, they say they're born from jets? Well, unselfish service is born from grace. It is rooted in the grace of God. It springs out by the grace of God in our lives to bless a waiting and hungry world. The unselfish service is rooted by grace because we know we're not worthy of God's grace. We know we're not worthy to receive the grace, but we know that, that, that God Almighty is entirely worthy of all the praise that comes as a result of us receiving that grace. John chapter 1. Go there with me. John chapter 1. It starts like this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Everything that came into being came into being through Him. And then you go down to verse verse 14 and it says, And the Word became flesh. And we know that is Jesus Christ, God the Son. And it says that He became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us, hung out among us. And it says that we beheld His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father. 
And then God gives two words to describe Jesus. His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father. Full of grace and truth. Grace and truth. There's a lot of people who say, hey, I'm standing for the truth. But they get all legalistic about it and they have no grace. They devalue the grace. And then there's people who say, oh, it's all by grace. It's just all by grace. And and they blur the truth and grace becomes something it's not. You see, Jesus had grace and truth in perfect balance. He didn't switch on the the switch and say, well, we're going to do grace now, and okay, we're going to turn that off, and oh, now we're going to do truth. You don't switch them on and off. They're not competing. They're not contradictory. They're to be held in perfect balance. And Jesus had 100% grace and 100% truth all the time, and that's what we're called to do in our lives, in our families, and in the church, and out in the community. Hold grace and truth. Hold it out. Grace and truth. It's a paradox. Jesus embodies both. When we come to appreciate the matchless, peerless, amazing grace with which we have been uh, showered by God, and when we appreciate the truth that he has given us, well then, by God's grace, his purpose is accomplished in us and through us. Grace and truth. Grace be with you all. It's the final word of Hebrews. And it's the final word because those he he was writing to were being harassed by those who hated Jesus. They were going through tough times and they would go through tougher times. They had evil rulers. There were hard times they would be going through. Some of them had gone through very hard times and they were going to need the grace of God. They were going to need the help of God. The mercy of God. They were going to need that grace and that favor and that help every step of the way. And so do we. So do we. See, the writer of Hebrews is shouting from the mountaintops. And he's saying, grace. He's pronouncing grace on all who will hear these words. Grace be to all of you. The grace with you all. Grace to the unconvinced. Grace to the one who has not yet come to faith in Christ. Grace to the one who is rejecting Jesus. Oh, that the grace of God would break into their lives and that God would draw them to himself. That they would respond in faith to the grace of God offered. Grace to all who have yet to come to faith in Christ. And grace to the wavering. Grace to the ones that are wanting to to throw in the towel. Grace to the one that feels like giving up. Grace to the one that has started to drift away. That they would be strengthened by the grace of God. And grace to the strong in Christ. Grace to the convinced. Grace to the committed. Grace grace for grace. If you you look again in, in John chapter 1 and down to verse 16... It says this about Jesus. Of his fullness we have all received and grace for grace. 
That literally means grace instead of grace. Grace in the place of grace. It pictures a continual supply as needs arise that God is giving grace and more grace. It pictures almost like a riverbed and the riverbed stays the same but the water flows through it over and over again and that's God's grace flowing through us as earthen vessels. Grace in the place of grace. So to the committed, to the strong in Christ, God is giving an endless supply of grace to meet every single need. Every need. So, as we conclude this study in Hebrews, it's hard to say goodbye to Hebrews, but as we can conclude this, we can take these words of wisdom with us. This, this word that says, listen to the word, bear with it. Let, it, let it assault your faulty thinking. Let it inform you and shape your mind and your heart and your actions. Listen to the truth. And, and love the brethren. Do what Christians are supposed to do with each other. Love each other. Love your brothers and sisters in Christ. And then that last word that, that really reaches over it all and, and just hovers over it all. Live by grace. Live by God's grace. Let's pray. Lord God, we we praise you for who you are. And Lord, we pray that you would be in complete control of us, that the Holy Spirit would ignite our hearts, that we would be 100% given over to you, Lord, that there would be nothing in the way, that that everything would be given over to you, Lord, that everything in our lives would be in your hands. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.